Hey guys, my name is Brad. I'm the lead pastor here at New Life Church, and I want to welcome you to our online teachings. One of our core convictions as a church is that everyone is welcome, no one is perfect, and anything is possible. Now, I know that for some of us, coming into a church building might be intimidating, it might be scary, and I get that. But I want you to know that there is always a place for you here at New Life and that you were made for real in-person community. We meet on Sundays in downtown Wayland. You can check out our website for more information on service times. But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through his word. Love you guys. Well, if you were with us last week, you know that we started a new series called Raising the Perfect Parent. And I love that title because it is so ironic because the perfect parent does not exist. And, uh, oh yeah, right there. Gabe thinks he's a perfect parent. Cool. I've seen you parent, buddy. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) That's bad. All right. ADD, back on track. Here we go. Uh, Man, we're going to have fun this morning. I can tell already. I want to start this morning by just sharing a picture of my three kids. For those of you who maybe have met them or maybe you're new and you you don't know my parenting story. uh, These are our three kids, Emery, Rowan, and Theo. And one of the things I've noticed about being a parent, and maybe you've noticed this in your own parenting journey if you're a parent, my kids could not be more different from each other than they are. On the left, you have Emery, who is utterly convinced that she's a princess. I have never told her she's a princess, but she's utterly convinced she's a princess. And so anytime we go on a daddy-daughter date, she's got to run upstairs and get her huge flowing ball gown on so she can go, and like she'll walk into the room and make her own trumpet noise, like do-do-do-do, and it's just a whole thing. The other day, I actually asked her to go collect eggs and do a chore, and she goes, Dad, I can't do chores, I'm a princess. And I said, girl, you're Cinderella still living with evil stepmother. Go do your chores. So what did she do? She put on her high heels, got a basket, and started skipping out in the field, frolicking, picking wildflowers. And this is the picture that I got of her afterwards. She is like a princess through and through in a pretty major daddy's girl. The one next to her, not so much a princess. The other day we asked her if she wanted to put a dress on like her sister and she goes, ugh, princess dresses are itchy and gross. I don't like them. She'd much rather be in cowboy boots and a bikini walking around the house. Uh, But her name is Rowan and she is our middle child. And if you know anything about stereotypes for middle children, they're often the ones that are like viewed as being like overlooked or forgotten about. Rowan has made it her life's mission that that won't happen in our family. Girl has a voice. She makes her presence heard and known, and I love everything about her for that. And then our last guy here, this is Theo. He is actually a foster son of ours that we have been in like a forever long process of attempting to adopt and no end in sight and blah, blah, blah. That's another story for another time. But we call him Mr. T. And uh, he is just the coolest little kid. I love him. Uh, But his newest obsession is not being left out of anything. He's got major fear of missing out. And so his most common words right now are, me too, me too. Like he wants to be involved in everything. And I pity the fool who will leave that kid out of anything because he (laughs) wants to be involved in everything. And I got to tell you, like my kids are my world. I love these kids. I'm in a hard parenting season right now, but I just adore these kids. In my opinion, the sun rises and falls on them in, in my world. And as different as they are, right? They have different schedules and different pain points and different personalities, as different as they all are. I remember with each of them, and I still feel this today, thinking the same exact thing, and maybe you felt this with your kids before too. Maybe you've asked this question 
And the question is this, what will this world do to my kids? What will this world do to my kids? You hold a newborn baby, fresh and new and innocent and in a lot of ways just unformed, almost like a blank slate, and you ask the question, what will this world do to my kids? I think that's a really valuable question and to be honest, a pretty valuable fear, right? A lot of us as parents have wrestled with this question. Maybe we still wrestle with this question. Like what will happen if, if my kid takes a different path than what I intended them to take, right? What if, what if the job they take on or the career choice they go towards or the relationships or the values, like what if those look different than what I intended for them to look like? What will this world do to my kids? What will this world do to my kids in the, in the form of heartbreak and pain? Like I pity the fool who's gonna hurt my daughters one day. You don't mess with a girl who wears cowboy boots and a bikini on the farm, right? Amen? <laughs> amen? I feel like that needs an amen. Right, like, like how will they be hurt by people in their lives? What will this world do to my kids? See, my kids are entering a world that is perhaps darker and more complicated and different than the one that I grew up in. And I think this is a really valuable question. What will this world do to my kids? And, and when parents are wrestling with this, uh, this question, there is a temptation. And the temptation is to do everything we can to insulate our kids, to protect our kids, and to even manipulate the path to remove all barriers and all pain and all hardship so that they can have the easiest life possible because every single one of us want the best for our kids. Brian, who started our series last week, talked about the college admissions scandal, right? That is the textbook case of this happening, right? Removing every single barrier. I always think of Lori Laughlin, who was Aunt Becky when I was growing up on Full House. Like, Aunt Becky's a felon now. <laughs> what kind of world are we living in? But Aunt Becky, right, she cleared the path for her kid to be able to enter into this college and got in trouble for it. But at the heartbeat of it, I think... Maybe a lot of us are tempted in this area to, to remove pain from the lives of our kids, to protect them from the hardships and the barriers of this world, to remove those obstacles. But here's the danger in doing that, and I wanna talk about this today. There is an inherent danger in being a lawnmower parent that removes every barrier for your child. And the danger is this, that we can end up filling a need as parents that Jesus only can fill in our kids' lives. The danger of being lawnmower parents is that we can fill a need in our kids' lives that only Jesus was intended to fill for them. I want to talk about that today. I want to talk about the alternative to lawnmower parenting today. And so perhaps there's no better example in all of Scripture of a lawnmower parent than Rebecca in Genesis 27. Rebecca is the mother of Jacob and Esau. And I love that we have like Rebecca, the lawnmower parent, and then Aunt Becky from Full House, the lawnmower parent. So we're just going to call her Aunt Becky uh, today. But Aunt Becky has two sons. She has one son, the younger son, named Jacob, and Jacob is a mama's boy. He is uh, essentially the princess, frolicking through the field in high heels, right? He is he's the mama's boy. He is, by his culture's standards, not really a man's man. He is sensitive, and he's described as the favorite of Ambeki. She loves the son. And then there's the older son, Esau. Esau's the man's man. Esau is the guy that I imagine probably doesn't say all that much, probably isn't superly sensi super sensitive. 
He's the kind of guy that just kind of puts his head down and does the work. He's a man's man. And he's his dad's favorite. Isaac, his father, loves Esau. Rebecca loves Jacob. And from the day they were born, these two young boys were on different paths from each other. God has promised their parents beforehand that they would both become nations. But they are on fundamentally different paths because what is about to happen in the story is Isaac is about to bless his older son Esau to give his blessing, his birthright to his older son, which carried with it all kinds of legacy and wealth and all of these different things that would set the trajectory of their family. And Rebecca is not about to have it. She is going to mow this lawn down for her favorite son, Jacob. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, I want to look at Genesis chapter 27, verses 5 through 10. Genesis chapter 27, verses 5 through 10. This is what it says. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Aunt Becky said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two young goats so that I may prepare for them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. So we're going to call Rebecca Aunt Becky Husqvarna because she is mowing down this path for her son Jacob, right? Not only is she stealing the blessing from her son Esau, she's even cooking the meal for him. Like she, he's, Jacob doesn't have to do any of the work here. And yet Rebecca is plowing the path, opening up the path for Jacob. She is taking into her own hands her definition of success for her son Jacob. Whose definition of success is Aunt Becky living out? Her own definition of success. She had a promise from God for her son. But she's taking that promise into her own hands and in many ways usurping God's role in her son's life by taking it into her own hands and mowing down the lawn so that Jacob has an easy and clear path forward. There is in your family story or you're tempted to do the same, or maybe you have done the same. I have a friend who's a teacher. She's been a teacher for a while. She said, uh, generations ago, bad grades were the fault of the students. Today, whose fault are bad grades? The teachers, the teachers' fault, right? Parents come to teachers and they say, it's your fault my kid is getting bad grades. Now I'm being facetious here, of course it's still the students' fault. But the the mindset of a lot of parents have shifted into this parental kind of um, lawnmower type role. Think about the same thing played out in ball games or with coaches, right? How many of us, if we're honest, we've ever just lost it on a coach or a referee? I see some hands over there. A coach or a referee because they made a call we did not like or because they didn't put our kids in when we thought they should be put in. See, those are kind of surface level examples. What about a little bit deeper? How many of us have ever taken every single one of our missteps and mistakes that our kids make as personal attacks on us as parents? That's lawnmower parenting. How many of us have 
very specific dreams for our kids that involved four-year college and a specific career path and uh, marriage and two kids and kind of this white picket fence vision for our kids and we'll do anything it takes to help them get there. How many of us are raising kids that believe the world revolves around them? Seen a lot of parents my age share this article recently that is titled, Why My Kid Doesn't Have to Share with Yours. <laughs> like, what is this world that we're living in? But I think what we're doing is we're unintentionally teaching our kids in a lot of the ways that we're parenting when we mow down the path for them that they are the center of this world and everything else revolves around them. For those of you who are parents in the room here, I want to ask you a question. I want you to think about this specifically for your own kids. What is your greatest hope for your children? Whether your kids are two years old or 25 year old, what is your greatest hope for your children? I want you to just think in your head of a word. If you were to guess what American parents typically say, what's the most common response from American parents for that question? What is my greatest hope for my child? Happy. Happiness is the most common answer for American parents. Eastern cultures, like Asian parents, will say things like successful, right? So there's a, there's a significant difference there. See, these aren't bad things to want for our kids, right? The, the heartbeat behind that is not bad. I, I think often it's easy to villainize Rebecca and the Isaac and, or in the Jacob and Esau story. But I want you to think about what Rebecca's watched happen her entire life. Right? She saw her husband, Isaac, play favorites with his son Esau. Yeah, culturally, the birthright and the blessing belonged to Esau. But as I was studying this week, one of the things that I uncovered from multiple scholars and commentators is this idea that Isaac, Isaac gave an informal blessing his entire life to Esau before he ever gave the formal blessing. Right? Isaac has been playing favorites with his son Esau his entire life. He went far beyond the cultural expectations of what a firstborn would have received from his father. And if you're Rebecca in that situation, I, I gotta tell you, like, love would say get involved, right? Love would say intervene. Love would say mow the lawn over. And I think that if we really get down to it, like some of us, when we think about removing barriers and a desire to remove pain from our kids' lives, I think there's some genuine love behind that. None of us want to see our kids struggle. None of us want to see them make mistakes or misstep or fail. None of us. I don't want my kids, perhaps, to struggle like I did. Maybe that's something you've said on your parenting journey. But I think there's some other things behind this approach to parenting. Maybe there's some fear. What will my child become if I don't manipulate their path, if I don't make life as easy as possible for them? Maybe you have extended family pressure at play. That was certainly my family growing up. Grandparents and aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters overstepping their opinions and stepping in and offering it. And so you're feeling all this extended family pressure to just make life as easy and pain-free as possible for your kids so they can be successful. Maybe there's some regret at play here. How many of us have let regret drive our parenting? We don't want our kids to make the same mistakes we did. And the last one I believe could be at play here as well for some of us is maybe some animosity or resentment. I gave up so much for my kids, they better not mess up this life. In this story, Rebecca, Aunt Becky, 
takes on the weight of her son's future and does whatever it takes to make that path as clear as possible to the point where she says this in verse 13. This is where she just takes it to its furthest extent in verse 13. She says this to Jacob. His mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Let your curse be on me, my son. She cares about her son. She loves her son. She's willing to do whatever it takes to see her son become successful, but there is one problem. She is carrying a burden for her child that she was never built to carry. She is taking on a weight as a parent that she was never designed to carry in the first place. See, we can be so well-intentioned as parents. We can want the best, we can want the world for our kids. I think most of us probably do with our kids. We want everything for them. Aunt Becky, she successfully manipulates Isaac. She tricks him into giving, uh, giving the birthright to Jacob. She, she does, like she's successful. But then what happens afterwards? Utter chaos erupts in their family, doesn't it? Isaac and Esau find out, and there's just like this explosion of chaos after this manipulation. And this is what happens in verse 41. She's scrambling. She's trying to kind of fix the situation that she created, and this is what happens in verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. You think you're kids have some sibling rivalry. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. That's such a nice way to say it. He comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran. And stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away. Until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Bereft, that is a fun word. Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Guess who was married to a Hittite woman? Her son Esau. So what she's saying here is, Jacob, I, I don't want you to be like your brother. After chaos erupts from Rebecca manipulating the situation in their family, trying to mow down the lawn and create an easy path for Jacob, what does she do after chaos erupts from this? She doesn't repent. She doesn't surrender. She doubles down. Right? She doubles down on trying to protect her son Jacob. Go to Laban, my brother, which we'll find out later in the story. He's just as manipulative as his sister Rebecca. Go to Laban, my brother. Flee there. And then come back when Esau cools down. She tries to control who he marries. I mean, every single thing about Rebecca is trying to manipulate Jacob's path. And I find myself asking this question. We know where Rebecca's plan is for her son, but what is God's plan for Jacob's life? What does God desire for Jacob? Because she, is Aunt Becky just trying to take the role of God in Jacob's life? By manipulating the path, by trying to make it as easy as possible for her son? See, we can become so obsessed with our plans for our kids' lives. 
We can become so obsessed with who they are, with what they're doing, that we forget potentially the most important question, what does God desire for our kids? Not just what does he desire for them to do, but who does he desire for them to become? See, what lawnmower parenting can do is it can turn these ideas of success and achievement and performance into idols in your family where kids end up believing that their only value to you is what they can achieve and how they can perform, and that's a really dangerous way to parent. That's not gospel parenting. One of the books that I read in preparation for this series is a book called The Gifts of Imperfect Parenting by Brene Brown. Any other Brene Brown fans in here? No, cool, sweet, nobody's heard of her. Um, <laughs> so uh, she, she's a, research, um, a researcher, she does a lot of like, psychological work and stuff like that. And uh, one of the things that she talks about is how there's this phenomenon that you notice in child development. We're around the age of 18, to two, 18 months to two years old, something starts to happen in the lives of kids. They actually start to discover that they are not the same person as their parent. Right? They start to discover an independent sense of self from their parents. And the way they discovered this is they would set kind of an 18-month-old or younger in front of a mirror next to his mom. And they'd put a little, like, something on their nose, like paint or something like that on their nose. And before 18 months, what would happen is the kid would see in the mirror this paint on their nose, and what would they do? They would try to wipe it off their parents' nose. Right? They thought them and their parents were one and the same person. But then around this 18 to 24 month period, kids, instead of wiping the paint off their parents' nose, they began to start to wipe the paint off their own nose. They start to realize, hey, I'm not mom, I'm not dad, I'm a separate person. And if you've been a parent, you label this period of time the terrible twos, right? Where kids are trying to push every single boundary. They're trying to explore, they're trying to figure things out. And we as parents hate this phase, Pediatricians actually view this phase as a sign of healthy childhood development, that, that kids actually need to discover some level of independence from their parents. And while physical sense of self from parents emerges around two years old, I would argue that a spiritual sense of self can take a lot longer than that. When I look at my own journey, I didn't actually take on my own faith as my own until I was in college. I grew up my entire life in the church. I grew up in a Christian school. I mean, spiritually for me, every single barrier was removed to experience Jesus. And here's what happened. Following Jesus was really easy. There wasn't much of a cost to it. I was insulated and I was protected. And when I was thrust out into college, into the real world, I had no idea what to do with it. I was lost. So parents, I, I want to tell you that there is there's a sense where we as parents, we need to encourage faith ownership for our kids as early as humanly possible. Not just a faith that we're kind of spoon feeding them, but a faith that actually costs them something. A faith that comes with risk and with hurdle for our kids. Because when we do that, we show them that this faith isn't just ours, it's theirs too. So I would say this, that successful parenting moves kids from dependence to independence. 
right? As our kids grow up, we want them to become more and more independent from us, right? Think of a 35-year-old living in, in their parents' basement still, which in some cases is fine, but, but in a lot of cases, right, there's not a lot of healthy independence there. There's maybe some unhealthy codependence happening. And what can happen in that mindset is that kids can lack grit and resilience, but more importantly than that, when we lawnmower a parent, we can actually remove this need for personal conviction over sin and a desire for repentance. When our kids' lives have just had barrier after barrier removed, we can remove the need that they sense for conviction and for repentance of sins. I love how Brené Brown in her, her book talks about this. She goes on to talk about how, um, how hope, like true hope, is only possible after struggle, right? Like when we allow our kids to experience some level of tension and hardship and struggle, that is where hope emerges on the other side. She tells this example of her friend who's a swim coach. And uh, as a swim coach, she wanted to teach her students how to do flip kicks, which is just like that turn off the wall so you can go really fast without having to grab on, right? So she has these students and she's teaching them how to do flip kicks. And so if they did it right, she, the swim coach would give them a thumbs up. And if they did it wrong, the swim coach would give them a thumbs down. And in order to get out of practice, they had to have five successful thumbs up, okay? Five successful <laughs> flip kicks. Well, parents were observing in the stands from a distance. And they came up to the swim coach and they said, we really don't like that you're giving our kids thumbs down. I think it might be hurting their self-esteem a little bit. This is true. So we'd rather you kind of go like this so it doesn't like damage them as much, right? Do, do this little, that was okay sign if they don't do it right. And the swim coach looked at them and they, she goes, I'm gonna keep giving them thumbs down. And uh, so that's what she did. And, and the point being made here, think about this, is that in life, whether it's swimming or any other journey, that when we come up against failure, when we come up against hardship, when we come up against difficulty and we get thumbs down, after thumbs down, after thumbs down, it can be defeating and it can be difficult. But there is no feeling after thumbs down like getting that first thumbs up. That there is hope on the other side of our struggle. That hardship and difficulty and suffering actually produces hope on the other side. And here's the thing, this is profoundly biblical. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Romans 5 says it this way, if you want to put that slide up. He says this, he says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our hardship, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Friends, God is not a lawnmower parent. God's style of parenting with us is not to simply remove barriers and remove hardships from our lives. Paul says the cycle is this. It is hardship, which leads to perseverance, which leads to character, which leads to hope. Why is hope the end result of that? It's because it's through hardship and it's through character development where we experience the hope of the gospel in ways we would not otherwise experience. See, friends, I said just a minute ago that successful parenting 
moves kids from dependence to independence. But here's the thing. In this church, we're not after being successful parents. We are after being gospel parents. And gospel parents goes a step further. Gospel parenting doesn't just move kids to independence. Gospel parenting moves kids from independence into total surrender for Jesus. That's the goal we're after. We're not after independence as an end result. We are after surrender. And my fear is that we're raising a generation of participation trophy kids who do not realize their need for a savior because we have stepped in as parents to be their savior every single time. I want you to think about that for a moment. You know, I've encountered parent after parent in this COVID season who has said, you know, it's just, it's too hard to get my kids back into church. And it has been a year and a half since their kids have been to church. And, and I just want to say, like, like, at some point, we have to be the parents and we have to lead our kids through what's going to be difficult and going to be a little bit challenging and going to be stretching for them because we know it's what's best for them. Amen. I'm guessing there's not a single parent in this room or watching online that doesn't want God's plan for our kids. I think most of us are deeply committed to God's plan, but the question that I think is a little bit harder is are we committed to God's process for our kids? Are we committed to the roadblocks and the hardships and the difficulties that may happen along the way in our parenting journey? Because here's what I know is true. I know that Rebecca wanted God's plan for Jacob's life, but she was not so stoked on God's process to get there. So if you take one thing away from today, if you write one thing down, if you remember one statement, remember this. Instead of manipulating God's process, let's be parents who focus on forming the person God wants our kids to be. Instead of manipulating God's process, let's focus on forming the person. The hard truth of the gospel life is that God doesn't always prevent barrier and hardship and suffering and difficulty. He doesn't. But the hope on the other side of that is there is not a moment of this life, not a moment of barrier or hardship or difficulty that you or your kids will ever walk through that is not beaming with potential for redemption. And your job as parents is not to remove those barriers, it's to point to how those barriers, how God wants to redeem those in your kids' lives, how God wants to use those, how God wants to be present in the midst of those. When we focus on this, and we're instilling in kids a resilience that is not dependent on circumstances. When we do this, when we take this approach to parenting, we're encouraging our kids to run in their own unique giftings and passions and skill sets, even if those look different than ours. Even if those are different than what we hoped they would be for our kids. When we do this, we instill a stability, a stability in our kids where moral ground is shifting every single day. We, we instill a rootedness of identity when identity is being redefined daily. This is the promise of parents who are surrendered and who are leading their kids towards surrender. I think about a contrast between the way Rebecca parented Jacob. I think about the way God parents us. Right? You look at his plan for humanity. And it did not involve, it, like people will often ask about the gospel, well, why did Jesus have to die? 
because there's hope on the other side of his resurrection. God parents in a way that leads us through hardship. His own son, who was absolutely and utterly perfect, fully God and fully man, God parented him in a way that led him through hardship. Jesus was tempted on more than one occasion to circumvent his father's process. In the wilderness, when he was being tempted by Satan, temptation after temptation was circumvent your father's process. You can avoid the suffering and still have all the things of this world. Circumvent it. Avoid the pain. Avoid the hardship. Avoid the barrier. Same thing in the garden. And what was Jesus the son's prayer to his father? It was, not my will, yours be done. God led his own son through difficulty and through hardship and through barriers, and he redeemed the world on his behalf because of that. That's the hope. You see, the, the message of Jesus is the great reversal of Rebecca. Rebecca says, Jacob, your curse be on me. <laughs> Jesus said, no, 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 your kids curse be on me. You don't have to bear the weight of your kids. You don't have to bear the weight of things you were never designed to carry on their, your behalf. Don't rob your kids of that hope. Don't rob your kids of a gospel truth that there is someone who desires to be with them in the midst of barriers, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of difficulty. And so, so how do we do this? I want to end today just by getting really painfully practical with us to talk about how we, like three guideposts or practices that we can put into place in our lives with our kids. And this is simple enough where we can start this today, we can start this tomorrow, even if we just start with one. I wanna walk through three of these that I think we can do to avoid becoming lawnmower parents. The first one, first one is this, cultivate worthiness in your kids. Lawnmower parenting spreads a lie that our kids' love and belonging is tied to their achievement and their performance and their success. Gospel parenting provides a drastically contrasted message to that. Amen. That you are dearly loved. That your belonging is not tied to your performance or your abilities or your achievement. I've heard the words of the gospel described this way, that you are more sinful than you can imagine and you are more loved than you could ever know. That's what it means to cultivate worthiness. You are more sinful than you could imagine, you are more loved than you could possibly know. Cultivating worthiness begins with the way that we speak in our homes. It's the way that we speak about our kids. It's the way we speak about our spouses. It's the way we speak to our kids. And maybe the most difficult of all, it's the way we speak about ourselves. Your kids will pick up how you speak about yourself, the way you degrade yourself. And so I would say start here. Cultivate a sense of worthiness that says, this place, this home, you're going to have to go into this world that's photoshopped and edited and everybody's putting their best foot forward, but this home, this place is a place where you can come and you can take off the mask, you can be vulnerable, you can be weak, you can have struggle, and I will be right there in it with you because you are worthy. You are my son, you are my daughter, and I delight in you because of your identity and not your achievement. That's step one. <laughs> no small thing, right? Step two, cultivate courage. If, if all we do is cultivate worthiness, we've created entitled brats, okay? So we, we have to be people that cultivate courage, right? What does this look like? Well, cultivating courage means taking bold steps of faith as a family. 
Like when was the last time you as a family took a risk to maybe serve together, to get outside of your comfort zone together? I, I heard a story of a parent who was parenting a, a teenage girl and uh, like pretty much every other teenager, that teenager was making all kinds of choices the, the parent didn't like. And uh, one of the things they realized along the way, along the journey in parenting years is that my, my teenager is looking for a compelling story to live into. My teenager is looking for a story full of risk and adventure and um, like affirmation and belonging. And I'm just not giving that story to them. My, our family story is pretty boring. What faith risks are you taking as a family? What ways are you stepping out of yourself, stepping out of your comfort zone so that your kids can see modeled that they are not the center of this world, Jesus is? See, if we're not cultivating courage, we're gonna raise kids without grit, without resilience, without this rootedness of character that comes in a changing world. And then the last one here is this. Cultivate surrender. Practice surrender in your homes. Your kids need to see God's power made perfect through your weakness. They need to see that from time to time you don't have all the answers. That you have questions too. That you have grief that you're carrying. That you've made mistakes. When was the last time we apologized to our kids for something we did wrong as parents? When was the last time we said, hey, I'm, I'm not feeling great about this situation. I'm not saying put your junk on your kids because there's an unhealthy way we can do this. But what I am saying is that we can cultivate this humility, this humble surrender and model that for our kids where we are practicing repentance of our own sins. Where our kids are seeing God's work at play in our lives. And we're talking about that as a family. We're modeling that. We're, we're walking through it together. The band's going to make their way back up as, as I close this morning, and I just want to share uh, a story about my daughter and kind of the way that this has played out for us over this last season. So uh, about a year and a half ago, April 2020, uh, my wife's grandfather died, and his name was Grandpa Sonny, and my kids were pretty close to him. So this is the first time that my kids, five-year-old and three-year-old, are really experiencing grief, really experiencing loss. And uh, the other day, this past week, I was laying in bed with my five-year-old Emery, and she just started to cry. I said, Emery, what's, what's the matter? She said, I just, I miss Grandpa Sonny so much. And she started getting really specific about the things that she missed about him. She started getting specific about, I miss his laugh. Nobody made me laugh like him. I miss the joy. I miss, like, I miss these specific things about Grandpa Sonny. And as a dad, looking at my daughter, I felt completely helpless in that moment. My five-year-old is grieving. What do you do in a moment like that? You know what you do? You point them to Jesus in a moment like that. You say, you know what, Emery? I feel a lot of those same things you are feeling. And I don't know why Grandpa Sonny had to die. I don't have all the answers to that. But you know what? I'm in this with you. I love you, and let's seek Jesus together. There is no more powerful time for us as parents to show our kids the gospel lived out than through barriers and hardship and difficulty. And what I've realized, even in this experience last week, is that I'm going to use every single one of those opportunities to point them to Jesus. And the good news is, it is never too late to start.
It's never too late to start. Maybe your kids are grown and they've taken all kinds of different paths that you didn't want them to take, that you haven't intended for them to take. I felt this really deep sense from the Holy Spirit during the first service. We're singing reckless love about a God who pursues us, who knocks down walls and climbs mountains and goes the distance to pursue us. And I couldn't help but think that there are some parents listening, some parents in the room who are singing that very song over kids who are far from God right now. I want you to invite you this morning to practice this posture of surrender. Say, God, I have kids who are far from you. Or God, I don't have all the answers as a parent, but I am going to surrender my parenting journey to you. I'm not going to try to control or manipulate or circumvent your process, God. I'm going to lead them through it, and I'm going to point them to you at every opportunity I get. That's what it means to be a surrendered parent. You pray with me, and then we're going to respond this morning in worship. God, you are so good, and you are, you are the ultimate perfect parent, the only perfect parent. God, I thank you for the way that you have parented us, the way that you have led us through difficulty, that you have led us not around barriers, not necessarily remove barriers, but shown us how every barrier, every hardship we experience is bursting with potential for redemption. God, may we parent that way for our kids too. Not with parents, not as parents that are perfect, not as parents that have all the answers, but as parents who are completely surrendered, as parents who are focused on forming our kids into who you desire them to be. And so God, we love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and everybody said,